the leopard just sat there and suddenly it dropped down on all fours and it crept along the ditch and out of sight and everyone just looked at each other in disbelief. You say, well, I've seen this big cat. Some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 21 of Big Cat Conversations. We're filming this in the Quantocks in Somerset, although we'll be talking about Cornwall and South Africa, because we're here helping Matt Everett film snippets for his documentary, forthcoming in 2020, Britain's Big Cat Mystery. You could hear Matt back on episode 8 of Big Cat Conversations, talking about his encounter and the making of the documentary, which he's now concluding. We've had three days of putting up trail cameras and flying thermal drones and tracking in the local countryside in the Quantocks. We'll actually refer to that later on in the show. But mainly we're going to be talking about the experience of Jay and Rhoda from Cornwall. They have experience in tracking people and wildlife. So welcome, guys. Thank you for coming. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. Hi. Could we start straight away in Cornwall a few years back, Jay, with your encounter of a black cat in a quarry area in Cornwall somewhere? Yeah, so uh, within Cornwall, obviously we've got a lot of China clay industry land, uh, so from St Orslup to basically Bodmin Moor. So it's kind of just off the patch of, of the so-called beast of Bodmin Moor. There's a number of roads, obviously, and habitations throughout that area. I was driving down one of the roads one day um, and looking across the valley to a, a reprofile part of the hill. This is obviously China Clayway, so it's bright white. And must be about a distance of about 800 metres off, there was a, a big black cat, unmistakably, kind of traversing down this slope alongside a hedge. Definitely a cat. The posture, just down on its haunches, the muscular tone, I mean, even from that distance, and, and the proportionality of the tail, there was just unmistakably leopard. There's no way it could be a Labrador or a German Shepherd. It's just that the shape was all wrong. The movement was all wrong. The position, it's just cat, unmistakably. Um, unfortunately, the road was too too narrow and it was quite a busy road, so I couldn't stop to get a better look. If I did, it would have disappeared, <laughs> undoubtedly. What were you doing at the time? I was just driving along the road. Okay. Driving um, along the road and just, just, just looking across at the clay tips. As I say, they're bright white and you, you couldn't ask for a better contrast for a view, really. Only anything better would be if I was closer. But how much of a surprise for you was that? Were you you were aware of big cat gossip in the area, weren't you? I'm aware of big cat folklore, effectively. Yeah, within obviously Bobmin, the beast of Bobmin Moor, um, around the China clay tips and, and pits. There's more of a folklore, of, I think, of puma. So to see a leopard in an, on an exposed clay tip just caught me by, quite by surprise. Were you? skeptic before then or did you have a view on it or how much did that sort of change your perspective on the whole subject i think it reinforced it. i've heard stories i've heard accounts from other people very credible people yeah seeing it for myself it it, it obviously brings it home but looking at the, the terrain and the habitat you've got there in my mind it would be a question of why isn't there a cat in there what do you think it was doing it looked like it was stalking, looking, looking for prey, or at least stalking prey further down, possibly rabbits, because it was just quite a, quite a low hedge, and it was really down its haunches. It was trying to get below that, that line of the hedge as it was travelling down the valley. Okay, and you were 
telling me before we started this interview that you think that whole landscape of pits and tips and and the uh, reclaimed landscape and the scrub is ideal for big cats absolutely the, the china clay industry and and mining generally in cornwall it occupies a, a large area of land you could quite easily travel 10 miles 15 miles and barely touch tarmac this is densely vegetated stuff um lots of willow gorse very dense vegetation as you get down towards also there's a lot more rhododendron and things which again is ideal for the cats People cannot physically get access to it or that it is private land that's owned by one of the mining or quarrying companies. Um, and particularly when you look at some of the big China clay pits, they, they are huge pits in their own right where all the, the China clay has been extracted and then the, the subsequent tips. So there's quite an undulating profile to the land. It's just ideal for navigating through and not get sighted, yeah. Yeah, and there's river corridors nearby, then there's open moorland and, and some of the peninsulas, and there's Bodmin Moor to the north and uh, east of that. So all of that sort of extends the big cat country in Cornwall, is that right? Absolutely, it's just, it's just the, the veins kind of leading out from that mass of China clayland. Mm. I mean, we've got a deer, deer population down there. We've got um, a few red that have kind of migrated down from Dartmoor and Exmoor down towards, even as, as far as Land's End, and these are red deer. Uh, the row, the extent of the row deer, they're broadening the habitat quite significantly now. Mm. There's prey species there, let alone rabbit and the other usual prey species. Yeah, and people who work in the industry, that quarry industry, sometimes report them, don't they? There's been stories of um, other workers. I think the, again, it's one of the kind of myths and legends of the area that a lot of the people working in the China clay industry are aware of the cats and there's the stories that they even feed them occasionally. Yeah, and there's the, the odd story of uh, another driver arriving with a lorry and spotting something and then uh, and reporting it because he's working on contract not not for the company he, yeah he, he's not aware of the, the little in that yeah we don't mention those yeah yeah, sure. yeah um i've had a few reports over the years from cornwall quarries one of the best ones was a lady who said she's walking her dog down to one very isolated in the bottom it was a it was an old derelict one but it had a bit of a sort of a pond lake in the in the bottom and she said a black panther emerged on the scene when they were totally isolated and vulnerable down there and the dog was around the other side where the cat emerged and the cat sat up and basically said gave all the vibes to just go away otherwise you know for it and yeah. she said it was remarkable how it just tolerated them and it was basically giving them a message to leave the scene as quickly as possible and she was very um i think she felt it was fairly impressive you know that the communication of that animal i'm the boss here you've invaded my territory please leave otherwise the dog gets it absolutely i think that is the intelligence of the animal and that it, it doesn't want to make a fuss it's, it's, it's doing its thing and it just has had this contact and just wants to the disturbance, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, just, it knows for well. If it makes a fuss, then it's going to be the next, the next thing hunted or, yeah. Thanks for that, Jay. So we move from Cornwall to South Africa. And welcome, Rhoda. Thanks for joining us. And can you tell us all about the experience you had growing up in um, getting tips from people in South Africa for the great outdoors and tracking and learning about nature? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I spent my early childhood in South Africa. My dad was very outdoorsy, took me out for walks a lot of the time. Uh, we've spent lots of time in the national parks as well. So I did get a really privileged childhood in terms of wildlife exposure and um, you know, just learning about the great outdoors. My dad was great for that. So I guess from a really early age, I was very interested in wildlife and very interested in tracking. I, had, I always tell this little story that I, um, I was just really fortunate to be able to play with some lion cubs as a very small child. 
because my dad, I think he had a secretary, it was, uh, who had a, a small wildlife rescue centre and obviously cubs need feeding on a very regular basis so she would bring them into work and then my dad would bring me into work and I'd get some really lovely time playing with these, you know, lion cubs as a very, very young child and obviously that stuck with me and I've, I've always had a fascination with big cats. Um, I'm actually quite scared of lions now, but that's another story. <laughs> Did you ever get scratched? No, no. It was only, you know, it was only sort of we, would, we would play with them until they grew a little bit, bit, bit too big to be interacting with anymore, and then it would, you know, that would finish. But and I guess it kind of coincided with them not needing feeding so regularly anyway, so they were just out and then in the sanctuary. Wow. Yeah, just a really lucky, lovely childhood actually. Lots of fond memories of being outdoors in Africa, uh, and then we moved here to the UK, moved to Cornwall, um, still, you know, obviously had lots more new things to learn about then, different wildlife, different plants. My dad took me out again with lots of walks. And I, when I went to college eventually, to university, I studied zoological conservation management. And then as part of that course, I was formally kind of introduced to tracking as a subject. And it was always something that I'd done naturally anyway. I just didn't know there was a there was a, it was a thing. <laughs> you know? yeah, an activity. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, OK. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I learned quite a lot. I taught myself a bit. I was taught by some, you know, some great teachers as well. Um, started teaching other people. So I, I tracked people and animals, trained a lot of people, and then eventually went full circle back to, well, well to Namibia, so Southern Africa again, because I wanted to spend some time with the sand bushmen in Namibia, um, who are our oldest living ancestors. The Human Genome Project has sort of proved that they are, you know, the closest link to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And I wanted to learn their traditional skills, particularly tracking. So I spent a bit of time there with a really lovely group of Bushmen who taught me all sorts of skills from sort of making bows and arrows and making spears to really in-depth tracking and stalking. So, you know, I thought I knew tracking and I thought I was a fairly decent tracker until I went there. But then... I really honed my skills out there and the Bushmen taught me. I, you know, credit them with pretty much everything I know now is, is based on what I learned from them. They take it to a different level for them. It's a daily necessity for survival yeah. and... Yeah, and it's just that they've kept that tradition going and they are just the most skilled hunters, really, and the most skilled trackers that there are, I think, in the world today. And as an Indigenous people, they're very welcoming and you know, took me under their wing and we spent a lot of time learning and it was just fantastic experience. So I try and bring that now to obviously, you know, I, I, and while I was out there, we were tracking leopard, tracking lion, you know, obviously even in Africa, big cats are quite, leopard particularly are quite elusive creatures and very hard to find. So it was always very exciting when we came across leopard tracks because, you know, it, it's, the, it's the one that people want to see, mm. but rarely do. Mm -hmm. So that um, is something that I've then tried to kind of bring back to here and apply to what I what I'm doing now yeah yeah well it's great that you're on the case and sort of part of the part of the squad of people helping and does it bug you that you've not yet seen a big cat in Britain a little bit but I know so many people who have so it's kind of just one of those things and I you know, it seems to be my luck actually I spent six months tracking otters for the Cornwall Wildlife Trust and I didn't see a single otter for that time either so I think that's just part of you know <laughs> I'm not lucky with sightings but I'm just I guess I'm fortunate that I'm able to read the sign 
so I know when something's been there, even if I haven't been fortunate enough to see it myself. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Do you think you've seen leopard tracks? I mean, I know we have. We've, this weekend, we've seen some prints which are ambiguous. They're sort yeah, of fifty-fifty, yeah, and they're the right yeah. in the right zone for a big cat. But do you think you've seen full-on leopard uh, prints in Britain yet? I mean, what we've seen this weekend. If I was in Africa, I would have said, "Oh, a leopard!" You know, because you mm. haven't got lots of dogs running around of different breeds that are, mm. you know, potentially fooling you. Yes. I have seen. I've seen a very distinctive puma track actually in Cornwall which I couldn't have attributed to anything else and there was also kind of corroborating sign around that so there was a hare and there was a scat and there was um, a sh- two sheep that had been killed um, very nearby so that because I had all of the other evidence around as well to kind of corroborate my finding I could say that was definitely definitely a puma track okay. yeah. yeah you mentioned otters we were going to talk about beavers because you guys are linked to the beaver project in Cornwall could we have just two or three minutes on that and what you're learning from that because you're using trail cameras and engaging with the public on that sounds wonderful so can we hear about the beavers in Cornwall it's actually part of Jay's um he's he's at university currently doing conservation and ecology course and it's part of his work experience so I've tagged along because I just think it's fascinating and I'm all for rewilding and reintroducing our native species back into mm. into the UK but I'll let Jay tell you a bit more about that because it's his, uh, his thing <laughs> that I'm just piggybacking onto. Yeah so we're both, both lucky enough effectively to volunteer there. Um, the, the beaver are interesting little characters. Um, oversized guinea pigs aren't they? Oversized guinea pigs yes yeah absolutely. Um, yeah they're, they're kind of from a tracking perspective to, to be a bit geeky they're, they're, they're very interesting and in they've got two completely different the fore and hind footprints are completely different um, and they've got this lovely little thing that travels along behind them as in their tail like a tail drag from an otter or whatever you've got a nice stripe but with this it very nicely kind of smooths over and plasters out the the footprint so they're interesting and and especially kind of migrating from water to land and and back and forth they're tricky little characters and their behavior is interesting so if we we see a tree that they've started to kind of work on and we think right okay that's great so we'll set some cameras up on that particular tree um, go back and view it after a week and yep they're still chewing away at that tree and then they just abandon it entirely so the behavior is always interesting to try to get one step ahead of them to get the cameras in the right place to try to capture something uh, I think we've kind of we've got it fairly well sussed at the moment we've yeah. got one one area where they're, they're highly active interacting a bit of mutual grooming and, and things so we've kind of concentrated most of the cameras in that one particular area at the moment it's taken us a very long time though actually yeah. several weeks to Home where, to yeah, really figure out where that, those cameras need to be to catch the best yeah, activity. Yeah. They're within a five-acre site, so they've got... It's not, not too large a site, and bearing in mind probably, what, about a third of that is water? Mm-hmm. At, yeah, at the worst, when the water levels are up. So we, we've got a fairly restricted area, and we've got at least four animals in there. So four animals within a fenced five-acre site, and we've only got three on camera at any one time. That's the, the most that I've seen so far. And they, they can be elusive, even within that small confined area. And this is a beaver. Obviously, they've got the advantage of migrating through water. And if they're threatened, that they will disappear into water and their the lodge, etc. They can enter and exit without being noticed. But in my mind, if we've got these fairly large mammals in numbers like that in a confined area that we can't spot, then by extension, a cat who has the intelligence to be evasive, then I'm, I'm not surprised that we're not seeing more cats. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about the beaver's behaviour and how they are the sort of architect in nature and they buffer water movement? Because, I mean, there's a lot of debate and discussion and uh, recommendations about beaver's role in the ecosystem now and you must be seeing that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, our involvement, uh, we haven't really got into too much of the scientific details at the moment, but we've got studies going on by the University of Plymouth, University of Exeter, looking at water quality, upstream and downstream, uh, the inverts and things. As we're coming into spring, it's going to be interesting to see what new species of plants are, are going to be uh, propping up into the area. Um, it was, in fact, if you, if you want to talk about the actual woodland before it yeah, became... Yeah, I mean, I, I was aware of the site for many years before the beaver were introduced there. I used to actually run tracking courses there, coincidentally, at the farm. Um, but it was just, you know, it was a patch of fairly young woodland with a, a small pond in the middle um, and not at all diverse in plant species or you know there was brambles and, and just this sort of young trees and that was it really and since they've put the beavers in the plant species the diversity in, in the number of plant species is just incredible so many more different species of plants are in there already which then obviously follows on that we've got different species of invertebrates of insects coming we've spotted birds there that have never been seen there before and even small mammals you know that have never been there before which is just amazing to see they really are a keystone species and mm. they are highly influential in our biodiversity of our waterways really all of that in just a few years yes yeah. absolutely yes. and they could be a big cat Three prey years. item yeah yeah they oh, could absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah so the, the, the yeah aside from the, the kind of the immediate environmental impact that you can see there in terms of species and things that there's the, the, the obviously maintaining and monitoring or leveling rather i should say that the flow of the water in peak water times there's carbon sequestration uh, nitrogen etc so yeah there's some exciting work to be done there with beavers at the moment they've all got to be enclosed by license under natural england and for a limited period of time albeit there are some that are at liberty so um, but as you say yeah quite quite rightly that they are a prey species they've evolved together with with wolves and big cats i mean you must have an emotional connection to them how would you feel if you found one uh, predated and hollowed out and eaten out, filleted out by a big cat. <laughs> the ecosystem at work, it's just yeah, nature's it was, you know, it's just nature. nature's way. It's just natural, it's yeah. how it goes, and actually it would be exciting <laughs> to be... I know that sounds harsh, but it would be exciting because then we would, again, like I said, I'm, I'm very much into kind of things being the way that they should be in the environment, and we are really lacking apex predators in our environment. So if I found a, a, you know, a beaver that had been predated on, then that's exciting for me because it means that things are moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And you could bring in some more from Germany or wherever they're yeah. <laughs> in quarantine or whatever. Yeah. yeah, the whole trophic cascade, we are missing that good couple of top tiers of, of predators. And that's, I think, where it, where it all starts to, to unravel. So Yeah, I think it's important that beavers and big cats, you know, are, we, we see them as mammals, individual mammals, but they are part of the habitat, part of yes. nature's ecosystem. Absolutely. And they do influence it in a wider way, which other species benefit from. So Absolutely. that's important yeah okay now before we did the interview you were telling me about this some um, wonderful color range of torch oh, kit yes. that you use and you were saying that the red on that because this is a great bit of kit that i'm now going to get because we've been using it this weekend and we yep. use it for nighttime tracking you can tell us about that in a minute but you were saying that for helping people watch the beavers at night you switch it on to red because it doesn't freak them it doesn't disturb them at all can you yeah, demonstrate the, the, yeah certainly so we've this is simple so it's an led lenser or lead lenses, some people call them. Um, we've got a few different colour variations. We'll go through the colours in a moment. Mm. But as you say, with the red, so a lot of animals have never evolved the red receptors, so they just can't perceive red light. So often with the beaver, we've got some slightly more powerful torches than this again, but kind of red spotlights that we can illuminate and we can observe the beavers at night and they're completely oblivious. So as I say, most animals haven't actually evolved those red receptors, so you can quite happily kind of move around or, or observe using the red light. Um, I'm not sure, sure about cats entirely. I think that some cats 
but only very few that have the red receptors. Most don't perceive colour mm -hmm. at all. Okay. So, and could you tell us about the green for tracking? Because this brings in evening and nighttime tracking ability, which you know I've not done, which I will now start to do. It's a wonderful sure. tool for that. Yeah. So, so with with regards to any of the colour light, if you've got white light, then it obviously destroys our night vision. It'll, that takes thirty minutes to come back. Whereas, yeah, the red is the standard. What military tend to use with green, we tend to use the green for. It gives it quite a good high contrast. It's easy on the eye. And again, in terms of colour receptors, we have evolved to have a broader perceptive range of shades of green than any other colour. So we can get a lot of detail out of that and we can control the angle of the light, mm. the direction, the, the contrast, and it, it just pulls out that, that vertical relief within the print. Additionally, this one has, has a blue, which if we've got an animal that's injured at all that we're trying to locate, that will show blood. So the blood will turn almost black. It appears to be black and mm -hmm. the vegetation obviously still blue and, and still got a normal white light function so it's a good multifunctional torch that uh yeah i don't leave home without it it just stays yeah. stuck on really the wall all that time. Yeah. yeah that's the search and rescue sort of backgrounds taught you yes. that but you brought yeah. it into wildlife tracking as well that's absolutely splendid. yeah yeah and while we're talking about kit uh, i know we mustn't overdo sort of technology on big cat conversations <laughs> but it is nice to talk about different tools for the job and we've been using the thermal drone this weekend yeah. um, with my son being the pilot he's been an excellent great. pilot yeah he's done really well we have been actually following the guidelines and protocols because we've been on land where we got permission yes uh, he and Matt have done the tests, the yes. online tests. If you wanted to do it more widely, you would have to do the Civil Aviation Authority training course and whatever. But can you tell us what you reckon of the thermal drone, its sort of pros and cons? Because it mustn't get too seduced by technology. But I really like it. I like it because it gives you an overview of the land. And I think that a drone, with or without a thermal function, is really useful. Yeah. As a tracker, I'm quite, it's kind of notorious kind of joke about trackers is we're always lost anyway, because we're constantly looking at the ground, very fine detail, what's immediately in front of us. And we often miss what's going on in the surrounding area. Could be a big cat sat on the hedge looking at me while I'm tracking, you know, tracking a deer in the opposite direction, and I would never know about it. So I just think a drone is a lovely, lovely tool to be able to just give you an overview of the area. And with the thermal function, it's obviously going to pick up on body heat of any wildlife that's in the area as well, which is just really useful because then it shows up anything that's hiding in we wouldn't be able to see mm. necessarily just with a normal camera. As long as it's not in thick forest. Yes, obviously, yeah. you know, thick tree cover, um, with, you know, if the, if the drone's flying above that, it won't be able to penetrate through. But when you've got it fairly low and you're just looking at sort of scrubby vegetation, then it's an ideal tool to be able to see what's there in the area, you know, you perhaps would miss if you were yeah. just looking. And we've had wind and rain over these last three days, but luckily, because it wouldn't really work in wind and rain, you shouldn't really risk no. it. So we've had to use the brakes in that, but we've still got enough use out of it. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, been... What do you reckon, Jay? I reckon it's a, it's a great bit of kit. I so say you, you've got that, well, as Rose already explained, you've got that other perspective. So if you get the thing airborne and you can look across, I mean, you can see other animals there as well. So if you've got deer population that are kind of laying up just within the edge of the woodland, and it's unlikely that there's going to be a cat there, but... Yeah, aside from the weather limitations, it's another set of eyes and it's another set of eyes that can give you a, give you a perspective that you can't have on the ground. So brilliant bits of kit, really. It perhaps gives you a, an area to focus on as well, because if you can yes. see that there's prey species within an area that you're scouting with the drone, then it's worth going there to perhaps check out and see what else is in that area, because obviously where there's prey, there's predators. So it just perhaps gives you a focus and, and an idea of where to move next. Yeah, I think there's multiple different scenarios you could use it. I mean, unfortunately, one scenario that didn't come across this weekend was something moving out of cover quite rapidly that we could have deployed the drone to take a look at. But certainly gets us into the right place by covering a large area very quickly yeah. that would take us 
physically on foot quite some time to cover. Yeah, you could recce an area and decide whether it was worth going to, a sort of quarry the other side of the, which you'd have to invest half a day to suss it out, but the drone could do that in five, ten minutes. Yeah, yes. particularly, particularly areas of dense vegetation to some extent, obviously with, with the, the line of sight, but if it's vegetation that we would have to fight through, if there is any, if there is any wildlife in there, we, we'd be sending it to the winds, wouldn't yeah. we, really? Whereas the drone can come across quite subtly because it's mm. quite this particular drone is very quiet it's just like a yeah. slightly loud insect really yeah. flying over <laughs> it looks like a large dragonfly doesn't yes, it yeah. yeah and it, you know it did spook the deer to some extent but it didn't you know they, they soon settled again it was it was not such mm. a, a noise that it was making animals really really frightened it was just mm. something that was a slight what's that and then they would settle down again so yeah. i don't think it was pushing anything out of the area when we were using it I think what I would say is that it does help to have a sort of, you do need a little team of people because we had Owen really, who was yes. designated to be the drone sort of operator, the drone pilot for the time. And that was really all he could do, focus on that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. we, you can't, you know, you do need a squad of people really to help you do your work on with the drone being specifically operated. It's all team effort in that, yeah, there's different roles effectively. And as we've had this discussion before about visual perception, even as we're going out into the field, if you're very task focused or if you're walking a dog for argument's sake, you could be looking at your dog and you could be, you're missing other stuff that's on the periphery. Mm. We are human. We are kind of forward facing predators effectively. So our visual and mental capacity is limited. It's a tool for a teamwork. I think if you're expecting to go out on your own and use it, then you'd be slightly disappointed. But if you're using it as an asset, along with other... It needs to come with a pilot, basically. Yeah. It needs to come with a pilot, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To give it a while, they'll become automated. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. Well, we now have a few extra minutes on the audio version of this episode, and we're going to start with Word of the Week. And I'm grateful to Rhoda and Jay for recommending a word, ecotone great word and ecotone is basically the transition between two different habitats two different areas of the landscape with different vegetation makeups in them and i'm going to ask rhoda to elaborate on that and explain a bit more and then we'll discuss the value of ecotone and why we think it's worth highlighting so rhoda what would you say about ecotone why is it important and what does it mean an ecotone is, like you said, the transitional border between biomes or habitats. So, for example, the piece of land that sits in between a forest and a grassland, for example, or like a heathland and a wetland, that little strip of land that creates that border between two different habitats has actually got a greater species richness than the two habitats each side of it combined. Yeah. You know, greater species richness or diversity of plants and therefore of invertebrates, small mammals, reptiles. And so for what we're looking at, it's got a greater diversity of prey species. And that is important, obviously, when we're looking at attracting predators into an area or finding areas that will attract predators to them. Yeah, there's more action going on in wildlife terms at all levels of the ecosystem to some extent. So there's going to be more prey items and the predator is going to be interested in lurking around in those areas more often than the straightforward full habitat either side, perhaps. Yes, definitely. Yeah, you'll find greater diversity of all the species that you've got in the area than you do in each side of it combined. So it's an excellent starting point to look for. And it's interesting, we were discussing with Owen when he was flying the drone and got it up and looking over the scrub areas of heathland or common land or pasture, and we were continually pointing him to the ecotone types of places that where the two different types of landscape and habitat merged. That is where we were trying to get the drone to, to fly along those areas. 
And also, they often have a sort of different texture in the landscape, don't they? A, a sort of softer and confused mixed texture between the main yes. sort of zones. Yes, definitely. And I think when you're using technology like the thermal drone, where it's very difficult to perhaps see into dense cover, if you look into forests, for example, when you've got lots of leaves, which the drone can't penetrate through, that borderland is the best place to look because you've got you know less for it to fight with and more animals to potentially see. So it's, it's perfect all round, definitely the best place to look. At a very simple level, it's just like deer will come out of the tree line where the woodland or forest meets a pasture. And those are areas yeah. where deer lurk. And that's presumably where a black leopard or a puma or whatever would patrol in a dawn and dusk in particular. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, with deer, they've got the choice then of, of browsing out in the grasslands, for example, and into the woodland where there's brambles and things. But equally, they've got the woodland to retreat into for safety if they see anything coming. And they, they tend to work along those kind of border edges. So obviously, where there's a high density of, of deer, for example, as a prey species, then your predators are going to be patrolling those areas more often than anywhere else. Great. OK, Rhoda, I think we've done ecotone as a word of the week. That's great to have. Could we go back to Africa in your younger stage of life? And could you give us a few examples of the Bushmen and the skills they had and how they linked to the land and, and wildlife more closely than the Western society culture can do? Because we've evolved away from a connection to the land more. And we can do this in the confines of, of a link up. We're doing this this final session actually on the line with the WhatsApp link because we were actually very bedraggled and flagging in the uh, audio, <laughs> the video part of the interview because we just finished three days in the field, long hours, and I hope we didn't come across as looking tired and shivering, but we certainly <laughs> were. So we're now a bit more relaxed and can think about going back to thoughts about Africa. So those Bushmen in Namibia. Can you tell us a bit yeah. more about how expert their skills were in tracking and connecting with nature? Yeah, I mean, they live basically as we all used to as hunter-gatherers. Not so much nowadays. A lot of the, the Bushmen have been moved into kind of government camps where you know, their land's been taken from them. They've, they've been quite marginalised. But the particular group that I went to visit have really seen the value in teaching their traditional skills to their children and, and trying to maintain their culture. They're quite proud of their culture so it was really fantastic to go and spend some time with, with that kind of group in particular because they're still so connected in the way that we all were as hunter-gatherers. So, I mean, they taught me, gosh, everything from basics of tracking to stalking to, you know, making bows and arrows to making necklaces <laughs> with the women. I was really lucky in that the medicine man from the tribe really took me under his wing and taught me a lot about the medicinal plants in the area as well. And I find, you know, when you're getting out and you're really getting to look at plants in particular, you begin to connect to nature in a much deeper way than you do when you're just sort of looking on the surface for a walk, for example. So that was really valuable to me. It kind of made me look in a kind of more detailed way at how we can interact with the environment and how they use plants for food and for medicine. And everything we need is all around us, really. You know, everything that they need is definitely, although it's quite a barren landscape, it's the Kalahari Desert, but they still can find everything they need for food and for medicine right outside their doorstep, really. Yes, they sort of really sense the functional worth and role of wildlife, I imagine. What about animals and predators? How skilled were they at picking up the signs of those? incredibly skilled you know obviously they're out in the bush all the time and they have to be aware of any threat from any predators and just from you know large mammals in particular 
every little bit of sign they would pick up on it and tell me what they were seeing. Um, so, you know, a, a walk with the Bushmen is just a fascinating experience. They really get into telling the stories of what the animals have been up to as well. So you get a really magical experience of finding out how the animals are behaving through reading their tracks and sign. That's just amazing. I guess they have a reverence for these animals, but in a different sense to us. I mean, we might see a leopard as charismatic in a way and stealthy and and nearly invisible and difficult to find. But presumably they have a different relationship with something like a leopard. They have a great respect for all wildlife. If they kill something, they're extremely grateful. They're very thankful. They spend a lot of time paying respects to the animal. They're just very tuned in. Part of their kind of tribal you know, their medicine man, they'll go into a trance and they'll almost in their mind shape shift into the form of the animal. So mm-hmm. they really try and get into the mindset of every animal that they're likely to encounter out in the wild because it helps them, obviously, when they're out hunting. And also because there's a spiritual element to that. And they have a real spiritual connection, obviously, to the land and to the animals within the land. Leopards, they really do respect and they they do see them. They look at them with the awe that, that we do and perhaps even a little bit deeper because they've got that spiritual aspect that connects them to the animals that perhaps we're lacking, Okay. some of us. Yeah, so a sort of shamanic link. Mm, definitely a shamanic link, yes, absolutely. Things like lion, where, you know, lion they seem to be the most fearful of. Obviously, they're hunting in pride and a great threat, really, to a couple of bushmen out hunting. So they've got a special, they, this is again where they're kind of connected to the land. They burn the roots of a plant which are supposed to repel the lions. So they'll light a small fire at night time. And they actually kept a fire going all night while we were out on bushwalk, um, kept throwing this powder into the fire to make sure that no lions came into the area where we were. And, and they were continually doing little perimeter checks and tracking to make sure that nothing was coming within our camp area. So they do have a bit of a fear, but for the main, it's, it's just a respect really for everything around them. Do children have special training or mentoring or is it just you grow up in that lifestyle and you pick it up they're just growing up in that environment and they're picking it up from such an early age and we were seeing kids that were two three years old with little axes chopping down trees and things you know just things that you would never expect to see in a western society at all but these kids are really switched on they're totally in that environment from the minute they're born so they just learn as they go yeah but it was great to see that some of the aspects of the culture which are dying out in some areas with the bushmen with this particular group they're really focusing on passing those things on to their children so that they do teach them some things but most of it's just picked up as they go along i think yes sure they don't need to go on bushcraft and survival skills training (laughs) whenever i've seen more traditional societies in my travels around the world i've been um i should i guess i'm pretty naive but i have been staggered at how many of them love uh, modern technology and mobile phones and why wouldn't they it's a computer in your pocket sort of thing but yeah. did, were they also conversant with some of our modern gadgets as well yeah i mean they do they have access to a town which is an hour or so away and, and i think some of the herrera people who have some land nearby give them a lift into town occasionally so they're not completely isolated they do know about how the rest of us i guess live some of the technology that we had with us at the time that we you know we had good binoculars and scopes and things that they'd never looked through a pair of binoculars before. So that was quite a surprise to them. <laughs> mm. <laughs> to be able to, we saw a lion kill off in the distance, you know, great part, you know, huge plumes of dust coming up and a, a lion killing an antelope. And, um, you know, they were looking, their eyesight, brilliant, obviously, but they mm. were looking and we were looking through the binoculars. So we showed them and they were really surprised to see it so close, <laughs> suddenly <laughs> a little bit scared, you know, <laughs> double check that it was still far away. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly zoomed in on it physically yeah. as well as, yeah. 
Um, I guess they have brilliant peripheral vision. I mean, tracking with you and Jay in the Quantox, I you know, was impressed at how good your and Jay's peripheral vision is as we go, because I find it difficult to sort of look in one direction and then be preoccupied with what's happening in the other direction. But I guess you've learned that and picked that up. But I guess they have that full sensual surveillance of the landscape as they go through it. Yeah, absolutely. They're brilliant. Some tribal people, I think, I'm not an expert on this at all, but have evolved to have much better eyesight in many different ways to what we have. We've lost a lot of our um, ability there, I think, with our eyesight, just from being so kind of focused on one thing all the time. I've tried to train myself to have a softer focus and to look and, and use my peripheral vision more when I'm tracking. Otherwise, you can get so fixated on just that one print in front of you that you miss everything else going on around you. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you've got a group of people and you're interacting as well, you can be focused on the people and not on what's happening around you. So Absolutely. Yeah. It's a skill that we have to train ourselves to do. But I think that the Bushmen just picked that up naturally from childhood or have evolved better eyesight than us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Final thought is if we had to go to the Bushmen to say we've got leopards and pumas and lynx in our landscape, how should we find out more about them? What do you think they would say to us? They are notorious for taking the mickey out of each other. And once you've kind of got to know the tribe, you're part of that as well. So they probably have quite a good laugh at us <laughs> for, having, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for having these things in our landscape to start with. They would probably really want to focus on just teaching us tracking skills so that we could find them a bit better. That's what they do best. And they are lovely people who really love to, to teach people and to educate others on how they live and, and what their skills are and, and how other people can obtain those skills as well. So. I think they'd just be really generous with their knowledge. Lovely. Great. Well, we'll do our best to hone up on our tracking skills and learn more about our cats. <laughs> yeah. Splendid. Rhoda, I want to thank you very much. I think we've run out of time now, and uh, that, but it's lovely we were able to complete the picture more from Namibia and the Bushmen. So many thanks for that indeed. You're welcome, Rick. Search and rescue work, what mm -hmm. has that taught you for tracking wildlife? Okay. So, I mean, I've been, we both have, really fighting for quite some time to get tracking recognised a bit more by um, mountain rescue in particular. I know that some of the lowland search teams do use tracking and have trackers on their teams. So we've been working quite hard because what we've got in Cornwall is a mountain rescue team. So we've both been members of that. We've now got two teams. They've split into two separate teams. We've got East Cornwall and West Cornwall. And we've just now rejoined West Cornwall search and rescue team with a view to bringing tracking and, and teaching and training the team up eventually and using tracking a bit more within the team environment. Although I've trained search and rescue teams previously as well, wider afield, not just in Cornwall, I more brought my wildlife tracking skills to track people because tracking wildlife is much more difficult than tracking people. We, as human beings, leave a, a lot of mess. <laughs> we, you know, we, you, we leave a lot of sign behind us and it's quite obvious when a person's been walking in an area. What it did do was made me focus on the details more because tracking for search and rescue, I think you have to have a really good idea of the condition of the person that you're trying to find. So a lot of our missing people tend to be despondent, suicidal or, or elderly who are really vulnerable, you know, with dementia, with Alzheimer's. The reason for bringing tracking into search and rescue is to cut that time distance gap to make it, we can find the people quicker. So we need to be quite aware by reading the tracks of how our missing person is faring, how are they doing, you know, are they slowing down, mm -hmm. are they struggling, that kind of thing. And you can read that within the tracks. So I, I've definitely started to look much more in detail into human tracks, which has then gone back around again to looking for that detail within the tracks of wildlife. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's really mm -hmm. interesting and it's a huge, it's a science, tracking is a science at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. there's a huge amount that you can go into it to a great depth um, in 
you know, some people say that they can tell if something's got a full bladder or an empty bladder just by reading the, the track in the footprint, all sorts of things like that. But we can definitely tell if somebody's tired, if somebody's thrown something to one side, if somebody's, you know, looked in a direction. And you can tell that with an animal track as well. Has that animal looked in, you know, looked right when it heard the drone in the distance, for example? You know, it just completes the story a little bit if you can get into that detail, I find. All, all pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if we, if we can timescale, the drone was in that area at that particular time, or we were active in that area at that time, and then we can see from a track line, so a series of tracks as, as the animal progresses, if there's a, a slight deviation, feet turning one way, etc., then there's the potential that that could have occurred, the two could have coincided, and then we've got a, we've got we've a, got a, time, a time, stamp. Time, yeah. time window then that we can work from. But um, yeah, my, my tracking's gone the other way. I've gone from tracking, starting off as a child, tracking animals to then tracking humans more professionally. And I think to be a good tracker of humans, you've got to have a good understanding of animal behaviour as well. Mm -hmm. So again, similarly, as I, as I just explained the example with the drone, it's getting that time window. So if you know the animal behaviours and you know that you've got crepuscular animals in the area and that you're subject missing person has travelled down a track that's been superimposed by a badger then that will have occurred overnight and you, again you can get that time window so it's all these little pieces of the jigsaw again with all the technology with all the tracking with whatever assets that we can call together it's the pieces is it stressful uh, search and rescue work because what i think is nice about animal tracking largely is that there isn't a time it's limitation very relaxing, you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very yeah. therapeutic but it i is, imagine yeah. search and rescue is pretty stressful isn't it yeah it can be I mean, particularly if you've got you always find that if, if there's a child for example, Gosh, yeah. um, every team member turns out immediately, you know, it's, it's, that's that kind of thing. And we do worry, obviously, about the people that we're looking for. Mm. Yeah, because you can't help but put yourself in their mindset. And I think as a tracker, you do that anyway. You put yourself in the mindset of whatever you are tracking and you cannot help but feel sorry mm. for or worry about the people that you're looking for. And we do also have to apply a certain amount of psychology of missing people to, to our work. We have guidelines that we follow, that we know how people who are despondent will likely behave. We know how people who have dementia will likely behave, you know, or have autism will likely behave. So we're already, to some extent, putting ourselves in that mindset because we're trying to second guess what they're going to do next. And it, it can be quite stressful in that respect, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you have got to keep disciplined and just do your, use yes. your tracking and, just and focus, search yep. skills, really. Yep. Yeah, and, keep and, and kind of be honest with yourself as well, because we, we tend to kind of rotate. Yeah. So the way that we work together as a team is that one of us will be we call it short eyes and long eyes so it's effectively like if you're on short eyes then you're kind of like that macro kind of detail looking at track to track to track and then you've got the other person is backing you up with a kind of a wider angle Sweeping. kind of yeah so you've got more of a situational awareness you're keeping an eye on the horizon as Rhoda explained earlier you could be looking at the footprints of the animal and the animal could be right on the horizon looking back at you so having the two sets Mm. That prolongs our operational kind of period that we can run for. Otherwise, it's we, very, we it's very visually. It's very tiring. Yeah. As otherwise, you know, to be to be tracking, especially if you're kind of step by step, and really focused, it's very, very tiring, and you get tired very quickly. And it's it's one of the key kind of things that you have to be as a tracker is honest. You know, I'm tired now. I can't go anymore. We need to switch it up, or we need a break. You know. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no 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 room for egos in it at all. You've got to be completely honest with yourself and with whoever you're working with yes. in that time for us to, to change over or just to rest entirely but that's seldom 
well, it's very nice that you're creating a bridge between the search and rescue community and wildlife tracking and yes. big cats. And yes. do you meet people in the sort of tracking community who could be interested in big cats, but they can't believe it, or they they're uncomfortable with it, or they're high status people, so they sort of shun it? Is is there that kind of thing? It goes on in other sectors. It, does it go on in your tracking uh, sector? You know, in tracking, especially in wildlife tracking, I think most people are fairly open to the idea. And I think if people are out in the outdoors and talking to other people who are outside a lot. You know, even into the bushcraft community, for example, yeah. we all talk to each other and people who are outdoors a lot are more likely to see things mm. that other people aren't. So there's not, I haven't come across a huge amount of sceptics, actually. Mm. Okay. Um, no, well, not I, at all. I think with trackers, you've got to be fairly receptive to whatever you are coming across. It's not like you can kind of force the tracks to be there or that you can create the world the way that you want it to. You have to be receptive to what you are seeing and be open to possibilities. Yeah. If, you, if you go in with a pre-kind of judged idea that... Well, they don't is, exist. You won't, then this you're, is the you're, assemblage you're of what I'm... Yeah. There's a limit to what you could yeah. see. see. Yeah. yeah, you have to be open-minded as a tracker because all sorts of things turn up and you don't know what's coming next. So yeah. Yeah. if you were close to the idea of there being any big cats in the UK, then you're just never going to see those... Tra- you're never going to see it, are you? You're just going to dismiss everything. So yeah. I think you'd be a really bad tracker Absolutely. if you were dismissive of anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Final session... Big cats in the UK, what do you reckon about it? No right or wrong. Jay first. Bigger picture, what do you think? Going back through the millennia that we've had big cats within the UK, we've had lions, we've had obviously lynx more recently. We're both very big on rewilding. And part of my view is if there are these big cats in the UK now and they are surviving or thriving with minimal issues and conflict with humans, then this sets a good precedent now for the reintroduction of lynx and such to like, even wolves. That would be the ideal in my mind. I know that being the UK, that's very unlikely to happen. But to re-establish the proper assemblage of species that we've got and a proper trophic cascade or trophic level so that we don't need to interfere as we do at the moment. At the moment, it's just we eradicate everything that we can effectively. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for big cats being in the UK. If they're not causing a problem brilliant if they do start causing problems normally these things can be mitigated with some fairly simple remedies it's it's nowhere near as complicated or as problematic as people may think having chatted with you over the weekend i know that things like lynx reintroduction and the perspectives on wolves that you wouldn't be forcing that you'd be saying let's have a think about it and do it carefully with all stakeholders considering it you're not one of these who would say you know uh, know, it's got to happen soon and urgently and it's definitely gonna it's all all very crucial on public engagement you've got to get people on side we've got to get around some of the kind of mysticism amongst these things especially like wolves as, as an example the big bad wolf there's all these stories throughout our history and throughout European culture of, of wolves being the, these big bad things however we've got the model in Europe itself now where wolf reintroductions have become very successful we've got this spread of wolves throughout Europe who are being monitored effectively by ecologists and conservationists so it's happening. We can we can step back and we can observe what's happening in real time now and, and then look at applying that longer term within the UK if, if the need or the appetite is there for it. Yes, yeah. Advice, research, training, education, Absolutely. all part of the process, isn't Absolutely. it? Yeah, yeah. We're only reverting back to the assemblages that we should have, that we have over centuries and millennia eliminated. And it just makes perfect sense to me, but, but everyone's got to be on board. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Rhoda, your view on it? Yeah, no, I'm in, I'm in agreement. I think, you know, like I said before, we're, we're lacking some of our apex predators here. And, you know, we're responsible as humans for eradicating these creatures from our environment. And our wildlife has suffered subsequently. Things are out of balance, essentially. 
And I think, like you said, it's, it's just super important to make sure that with everybody being on board, making sure that everybody's happy, that everybody gets their say. It's very important, particularly, you know, when you've got farmers and, and landowners and people who are potentially would be worried about there being big cats in the, in the UK. I think lots of communication needs to happen with those types of people. And then perhaps do we need to do a reintroduction programme? They seem to be, to my mind, there's lots of sightings and very credible sightings. Perhaps we've already got you know, quite a decent-sized breeding population here. Mm. In which case it would be reinforcement or supplementary, because that is done yes. for things like pine martins, Absolutely, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So then monitoring that population properly, having mm. people really working on making sure that that's... It depends. You're going to have always going to have people arguing that, you know, these, these are not species that should be in the UK when you're looking at, at species that were brought in as trophy pets mm-hmm. and things, which have come from, from other countries. But then if you look far enough back in our history... You know, we, we did have these kind of species here yeah. and they are filling a role, like I said, of the apex predator where we're lacking. Uh, you know, when we're having to cull our deer populations because there's nothing to take it out, you know, <laughs> surely it makes sense if there's not an impact on, on our livestock. And if there is, we can do something well, about we it. We can, we can absolutely do something about it. And there's always been, there's, what I've seen, you know, things that I've heard about, it's very rare that there's any, you know, there was, there was a spate in the 80s, I think, where there was a few sheep killed. But nowadays, you so rarely hear about farmers having any taken. And, mm-hmm. and there is that possibility to have some compensation in place then. You know, if we can actually say, this creature's a present, and if you do have something happen, here's a, a source of funding mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to mitigate that for you, you yeah. know. And, and advice and support. We totally, mustn't leave people in totally. the lurch. Yeah. And keeping people, yeah. yeah, it's that. And I think people feel perhaps if something like this happens, they, they don't know who to reach out to. They don't know who to talk to. To have that in place, I think, would be a, a marvellous idea. Yeah. I think if our, if our natural assemblages were as they should be, that there would be minimal need for animals to prey on livestock. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, if I was a big cat and I've got a nice, nice little roe deer that I could tuck into in the woods quite nicely, just a rabbit, why, yeah. why would I expose myself and run to the middle of a big field to take out this yeah. big fluffy thing that's going to fill my teeth full of wool? <laughs> you know, it's this kind of... Yeah, it doesn't happen much in their native countries. No. So. No, 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 exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when you've got places in India, for example, and, and places in Africa where you've got populations of human beings living in very close proximity to leopard populations... Even in those places, it's very rare you might get the odd rogue cat who's a problem, but the majority of the time, coexisting quite happily together, you know, in, in a very small area. And that you, like I said, you know, they're such elusive creatures, you're lucky to see one. You've got people in these areas where they're quite prolific and may never have seen one in their life. So I think they, they tend to keep their distance from humans if they can. Great. We're running out of time. Any final points you want to make before we close off? Just to thank you very much. It's been actually lovely to spend some time this weekend with you. Absolutely. Um, we've learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, great. Well, it's been a good team effort. Just a great, yeah, great weekend. So, yeah. Yeah. And thank you very much for having us on your podcast. Okay. Pleasure. Thank you very <laughs> much. And thank you. Great. Thank you. And thanks to Matt Everett and Owen, who are behind the cameras. And those of you who are watching this on YouTube, this is a rare event having an episode on YouTube. Um, it's normally on an audio podcast. It's a fortnightly production. So hope you can join us on the audio episodes normally. And those of you listening, thank you very much. You can watch it on film if you want to. Okay, we're nearly finished, but just a few more things to say before we sign off. First, in terms of thermal drones, like any drones on the market, there are a range of specifications and costs, but the one we were discussing in the interview is made by the company Parrot, and it's called the Parrot Anafi, A-N-A-F-I, if you want to look it up, and it retails for under £2,000, which sounds a lot, but it's much less than most other thermal drones on the market, and although it's cheap by drone standards, it will do a job, and it makes a thermal drone just a bit more affordable. 
We're very grateful to the company Copters for helping us out with the use of that one. On the Big Cat Conversations website in the references and links page under episode 21, we've put a two-minute video clip showing this exact kind of drone being used in a wildlife reserve in South Africa. So you can see it being used to monitor different wildlife species, both in the day and the night, and it can help detect any nighttime poaching going on there. And a couple more points about the Paratonafi thermal drone. As we said, it's small and compact, so unlike some of the more high-spec drones, it takes up very little space in the house and the back of a car, and when you're lugging it about in the outdoors, it's very small and portable, which is very handy. And second, as we said in the discussion, it is pretty quiet and sounds just like some buzzing insects, really. We've got to be careful when flying drones that we don't spook and stress other animals. So I think there's less chance of that happening with a paratonafi. But obviously, you've still got to be careful about not stressing animals when you're flying a drone. Now, we're scheduling this episode while everyone is in lockdown mode due to the virus pandemic. And just to emphasise that the interview we recorded with Rhoda and Jay was one done in early March 2020, well before the lockdown and limitations that are now in place as I record this final part of the episode in late March. And I know these are challenging and stressful times for all of us with the worries about the effects of the virus itself and the wider impacts on the economy. Perhaps the simple things in life suddenly become a lot more important to all of us, like our sense of community and support to each other and everyday nature. Things like birdsong, which is suddenly more evident to us all in the world, now it's slowing down and quietening down. In terms of future podcasts, inevitably the proposals for our recordings of guests having conversations in pubs around the country have been put back for a good while. The current proposals for these pub podcast evenings are for the Mendips in Somerset, the Fordingbridge area in Hampshire and the West Berkshire Downs area. So if there are any listeners who've had encounters and want to come along to those events in the future, please do get in touch. You can email me. And as always, if anyone has suggestions for these or any other aspects of the podcast, please do get in touch. Finally, just to mention the next episode, that will be one we've mentioned already because we've rejigged the order recently. So it's the promised one with sightings from Herefordshire, and that one includes a photograph, and from Shropshire, where the report involves a cub and a larger cat presumed to be its mother. Because that episode involves a photo that will be on the website, we'll discuss the difficulties and challenges of taking a photo. I know we've done that previously, but we'll go into more depth on this one because we have an example to talk about. And that's great because the last time we had a discussion on actually taking footage was way back in episode two of this podcast when we talked to Corin, who filmed a large cat and did the scaling exercise afterwards. Okay, we're all done for this episode. Please stay safe, everyone. Thank you for listening and take care.